Thank you, team. That's a fitting song for us as we prepare our, to enter into our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn with me to 1 Thessalonians and maybe situate yourself there in chapter five, although we are gonna jump around the book a little bit. That'll be the first place that we kind of dive in. Let me say welcome to those of you at home watching. We're glad that you are joining with us. And I shouldn't say watching, but I should say worshiping with us because I trust you're engaging with us in worship. And let me remind uh, you at home that we are going to be taking communion at the end of our time of worship together today. So if you want to uh, grab those elements, if you have them available to you, that would be really wonderful. Well, uh, I've got you turned into 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But let me uh, mention a couple things to you. Remember that uh, tomorrow, is it still raining outside, by the way? I don't even know. I've been in here for several hours. All right, all right, fantastic, good. I hear not so much, that's awesome. Let's pray for better weather next week because next week is our baptism service. So we will be uh, more than likely outside, but we'll, we'll have it rain or shine. So we'll move inside if we need to. We'll do it in here, but we plan to do it outside. So I just wanna remind you of that. It's coming next week, uh, and it'll be an exciting week. I think we're getting up close to like 40 folks that have, uh, that have uh, signed up to be baptized, so that's worth celebrating, yes. It's awesome. Anytime we see people respond in obedience to God's call to be baptized and proclaim their faith in him, man, that is worth celebrating. And I think particularly worth celebrating is, I think we're at like 20 of the almost 40 are students in our student ministry, um, which is a really awesome thing. Anytime I see God's hand moving and his spirit moving in a rising generation, man, that just pumps me up. It gets me excited. So I just wanna make note of that. Let's thank God together for that, you know, uh, work that he's doing. Yeah. So excited to celebrate that with you. If you have not been baptized, you're a believer, or if you have not placed your faith in Jesus and you know that is something the Spirit's prompting you, I need to come to faith in him and then to be baptized as a result of that. Man, come talk to us. We'd love, love to celebrate baptism with you this coming week. So not too late, call us to the office, come see one of us in the prayer team afterwards. We'd love to talk with you about it. Uh, just quickly, I wanted to make mention too, I know, you know, kids, if you got them, you're back in school, Messiah, you're back in school, um, you know, the governor's mandate as it relates to masks and the schools and everything. I want to make sure I communicate to you, we are not changing our protocol here at the church. Uh, so you are free to wear a mask or to not wear them. Uh, that is up to you. So we're glad for you to have that freedom and liberty uh, as you partake of it. But let me say this, with that liberty, friends, don't miss the opportunity to love one another in this time. Don't miss the opportunity. If we have brothers and sisters who choose to wear a mask and you choose not to wear one, please do not speak ill of one another in that. And it goes both directions. I hear stories from time to time. It's like, well, this person got on to me because I wore one, or this person got on to me because I didn't wear one, or they just were unkind in their words. Friends, you're missing it. You're missing the opportunity to love one another where you have different perspectives on this matter. And I know some of you feel very strongly about it. Friends, if you want to wear a mask when you come to worship with us, wonderful. Please do. And no one, no one better say an ill word to that person. Do you hear me? And the same is true in reverse. If you are comfortable not wearing a mask and you come to worship, no one should speak ill of you, okay? There is no need, There's, this is an issue of liberty. This is not an issue where all believers must do one specific thing. Okay, so I want... And of course, too, friends at home, and if you feel like that's 
right now where you need to join us in worship, then okay, that's why we provide online worship. That's there as well. So we are going to fight to love one another in this season. And that's what you're just gonna keep hearing me say over and over again. Now we will, we will track the numbers. We're watching the hospitalizations. We're watching all that. And if at some point we feel the need to change protocol for what's always our grid, love God, love each other, love our neighbor. And if we sense the best way to do that is to say, all right, we need to take a little different approach, then we'll do that. Then we'll do that. But I just want to make sure I communicated with you in this season. And then I just call you to love each other and to be gracious and gentle with one another. Can we do that? Okay. I promise you all week long, you're going to get beat up out there. Please don't beat each other up in here. Extend grace, show love. All right. That's, I'm going to keep calling you that. All right. First Thessalonians. Is really an amazing book where the center of the book, or at least the major theme of the book, is to talk to us about the return of Christ. Now, with school back in session, how many of you are getting up a little earlier than you were getting up before? Yeah, absolutely, right? I mean, my wife and I, we like to work out together most mornings, and so, you know, we're getting up now, and it's dark when we're doing the workout. It's so much harder to do it when it's dark outside. And we do a bunch of different types of workouts, right? So we'll do, um, you know, what we call AMRAPs, which is like do as many rounds of this exercise you can in 20 minutes. And then we'll do some that are like these every minute, on the minute workouts. It's like you do a certain number of something and then every minute you gotta start on the minute, you know, as the clock's going. All these different types of workouts. Can I tell you my least favorite kind? I mean, the one I hate the most. There are these things we call 60-15s. You do a certain number of, you do like, whatever exercise you're doing, you just do it for 60 seconds. You know why I hate that? And then you take a 15 second break and then you do it again for 60 seconds. I hate them. Do you know why? Because the only way I can get through it is it's too indefinite for me. I need a number. If you tell me do 30 of these, I'm in. If you tell me just do this until 60 seconds is up, I hate it and I don't want to do it. Do you know how I get through it? I pick a number and if I get to that number before the minute's up, guess what I do? I stop. Made it, done. 25, 30, whatever it was, right? Now, we take turns switch it, picking like who picks the workout, right? And my wife loves the 60-15, so there's way too many of them in my life right now. <laughs> but what's interesting is, you know, you might be in a season of life kind of like that, where, you know what's hard about that is the indefiniteness of it. I'm experiencing pain of some sort for an indefinite, like I, I need to know, like do 30, do 15, do 25. What, I like the definiteness of that. I do not like just do as many of these as you can do until some arbitrary clock runs out. And some of you might be in a season of life that's kind of like that right now, where there's pain, there's difficulty, there's challenge, and you don't know when it's gonna end. There's no definite set number of reps of whatever the difficulty is that you're having to lift, that you're having to do. And like, if I just knew I had to do this five times, I could get through it. But you're like, what if I have to do it 20 times? What about 30? What about 40? I mean, how, how, often, how much do I have to do of this? That's hard, isn't it? Indefiniteness is hard when it comes to struggle. Culturally, we're in a time like that now. You might be in it individually, but culturally, we're in a time like that. How, how many reps of COVID stuff do we have to go through? How many times do we have to lift this weight before we can be done? And the indefiniteness of that is hard. Would you agree with that? It's really hard. And here's what I find. In seasons like that, I find something happens among Christians. And it's all my life I've noticed this. I've noticed, and particularly pastorally, you pay a little bit more attention when, when this is your role in the body. 
I've noticed that there is a renewed um, sort of intensity of thought or interest in the return of Christ when we're in seasons like this. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because whenever you're in, you know, a turmoil, difficulty, it makes sense that we as believers would turn our attention to our great hope, something that is going to transpire, that is going to come, and yet we don't know when, so we don't know how many reps we've got to do. Uh, we don't even have a clock on the wall that says at one minute, you know, you're done with your reps. We just don't know because we don't know when the return of Christ will happen. And yet we find a renewed interest or a renewed focus on that in seasons like this. And that I would say is good because it's a source of hope. I mean, recognize, let me say to those of you, because I know every week, some of you or most of you probably are followers of Jesus. That's why you come to worship him. But every week there's always some of you who do not believe you've come with a friend or a family member or you're just yourself. You came on your own and you're just checking it out because you're exploring whether this is true. You're in the right place. But let me say to you, as you're doing that exploring and, and thinking, I want you to recognize something. When we proclaim that Jesus is going to come again, we are not just stating a reality about the future. What we're declaring to you when we say that, that we believe that he will return, we're saying that he's alive. And therefore we're proclaiming the resurrection of the dead, that he has been raised, and therefore we can be raised. That's what we're declaring to you. That's what I, I need you to hear that because I don't want you to think we're just talking about some sort of future fascination. We're talking about a certain and sure hope that we have and we have it because we believe Jesus is not dead but that he is alive. And that's what we were singing when we sang Jesus, our hope in life and in death. That's what we just sang to you. So just be aware of that as you're exploring, that we're not just talking about a future reality that we believe in, we're talking about the resurrection of the dead in which we believe. That those who have placed their faith in Jesus will be raised to eternal life when he returns. Now, with that, here's the other thing I find. Within the body of the church, I find that the renewed interest in the return of Christ sometimes takes the shape and form of a real fascination with dates and timelines and historical events and trying to figure out how the current events in the newspaper line up or don't line up with things that we see in terms of the scripture. And sometimes I would argue that if there's an over fascination with that aspect of the return of Christ, because here's the thing, the message of 1 Thessalonians and actually 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, a good quarter of the book is concerned with the return of Christ. And in 2 Thessalonians, half of the book is concerned with the return of Christ. Now, we're not gonna go verse by verse through 2 Thessalonians, but I'm gonna dip into it from time to time as we go through 1 Thessalonians. And in Matthew chapter 24, and in the book of Revelation, here's what I would tell you. All of those texts, those books, or, or chapters within uh, books, like Matthew chapter 24, they all exist actually to teach us one specific thing, and then a number of nuances. Certainly, we will see details about the return of Christ. So the Thessalonians themselves, to give you a little context, are asking two big questions as it relates to Jesus' return. Number one is, what's gonna happen to people who already died? They're a grieving church. They've lost people they love, and they're asking, will they be able to experience the return of Christ in the same way that I will, because they lived as if it was happening tomorrow? And that's a good way to live. And they said, what's gonna happen to them? And so Paul wants to answer that question for them. 
There's then in 2 Thessalonians, the concern is they're, they're hearing some inkling of a teaching that somehow Christ might have already returned and they missed it. Now that would be kind of scary, wouldn't it? And Paul is trying to assure them you haven't missed it. You haven't missed it. You'll know. <laughs> you will know. And he gives them some assurance of that. And in doing that, he deals with certain events and, and timeline sorts of issues. But above all those things, Paul's concern is to say the best way to be prepared for Jesus to return. And that's what he wants to, he wants to both comfort them and cause them to be prepared. The best way to be prepared is not to know details on a timeline. The best way to be prepared is to live your day-to-day -day life in righteousness. That's Paul's concern. You wanna know how to be ready for Jesus to come back. We might say that the whole theme of this book is to answer the question, are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus to return? And Paul will tell us the answer to that question is not so much based upon your intellectual knowledge of certain events and your ability to identify events on a timeline or connect current events to things that we see in the Bible. The answer to that question is really rooted in whether or not we are obeying him in righteousness on a day-to-day -day level. He's gonna talk about our work lives. He's gonna talk about our physical intimacy with other people, our spouse. He's gonna talk about our relationships. He's gonna talk about the character within us as we seek to minister to others. There's really gonna be no stone unturned as it relates to our lives. And he's gonna take all these mundane parts of life, these daily realities, and he's gonna say, now, you want to know if you're ready for Christ's return? Examine the day-to-day -day of your life. Does that make sense? That's the message of First and Second Thessalonians as they concern themselves with the return of Christ. Let me show you this. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse five and six. We're calling this series "Keep Awake," and the reason we call it "Keep Awake" is because of these words in First Thessalonians chapter five, in verse five and six. Paul says this: "For you are all children of light." Children of the day, we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Now, when Paul says, you are children of the light, what he's saying to the Thessalonians is, you are people who are to walk in righteousness. That's what children of light means. You're not children of darkness. You're not people who are given to unrighteousness. You are children of light. You are people who are given to righteousness and to obedience. That's what he means when he uses that phrase. Therefore, keep awake. In other words, what he's saying is, keep awake means be ready. Be ready for Christ to return. Live as if he could return at any moment. How do we do that? We do that by living as children of the light. We do that through day-to-day -day acts of righteousness. That's what he's arguing. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, similar idea. He says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now... May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them, what? In every good work and word. In other words, he's just gotten done in that section. I didn't read this part to you. He's just gotten done talking about the Antichrist, about this end times figure who will be a ruler in the earth who will oppose God and will rise and ascend to power and do some things that will lead people astray and someone who is to be in some sense recognized as formidable and in spite of 
all that that he explains about the Antichrist, his response to that is not, so be ready to recognize him. His response is, so hold to the traditions we gave you, live in righteousness and do the works and say the words that we gave you to do and to say. You with me? Does that make sense? He's saying the way to be ready is to focus on your day-to-day life and to do the next right thing and to walk in obedience and to walk in righteousness. It's kind of simple, right? Challenging, but not complex, and I love that. But Matthew 24 is the sort of preeminent New Testament um, gospel text where Jesus is talking about his own return. And in that, he gives us the parable of the wise servant, and then he follows that with the parable of the talent, oh no, sorry, the parable of the 10 virgins, and then he talks about uh, the parable of the talents, like how we use the things God has given us, and then he talks about sheep and goats and who will be received into the kingdom and who will not, and do you know that the emphasis of every one of those, they teach different nuances of lessons, but essentially all of Matthew 24 and every one of those things is meant to say, you wanna be ready for my return? Then you better be faithfully doing the things that I've called you to do. The sheep are the ones who are caring for the poor and the prisoner, right? And the goats are the ones who are not. So in other words, you wanna be ready? Do the things that I've given you to do. Care about vulnerable people. Care about orphans and widows and the alien in the land. Do, do these things, right? The parable of the talents is I've given you something. Now don't take and bury it. Go and invest it. Go and be about using what I've given you day in and day out. The wise servant, the ten virgins, it's those who, who have prepared themselves and they have taken care to do their work with diligence so that when he returns, they're ready. Do you see what I'm getting at? All of these New Testament texts really drive us towards this one idea. We are to be people who are concerned with our day-to-day lives and that is how we are ready for him to return. So let the gospel, the implications of that gospel, inform every area of your life. Now, I wanna wanna talk about three of them with you. There's gonna be numerous throughout this series and we'll get to touch on all of them, but just by way of kind of whetting our appetite for this, what I wanna give you today is three. I wanna teach you three ways that we can be prepared for the return of the Lord by paying attention to our day-to-day righteousness, letting the gospel inform the way we live. So the first one is that the gospel should teach us a new way to think about persecution and suffering. The second one is the gospel should teach us about our relationships. And the third one is that the gospel should teach and instruct us about, um, I'm I'm drawing a blank, sometimes that happens. Let me go to my outline, Uh, about our work, about how we work. So those three things today. So let's look at the first one. How do we let the gospel teach us about how we think about persecution? Now listen, the gospel does two things probably does more, but two things in particular about our perspective on suffering and persecution. Now, when I say that, I'm talking about what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are you when you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness. I'm not just talking about, um, you know, people in authority over you doing something you don't like. I'm talking about the, you are standing for Jesus, you are representing him, and you experience a cost as a result of that as a result of standing for the gospel and speaking up for it, not just my boss did something and I don't like it. You, does it make sense? So this kind of persecution, right, is what uh, Paul has in mind. Just to give you a little bit of context, the Thessalonians are experiencing a great deal of persecution and when Paul founded the church, he was actually chased out of Thessalonica and had to sort of flee the city under threat of him being put to death. 
And so he's, he's kind of been on the run, and he's now, this whole letter is, he's gone away, he's now down in Athens, and he's writing them a letter back. He sent Timothy to them because he was just so concerned about what their suffering and persecution might cause them to do, that they might let go of the gospel, that they might shrink back. And he's concerned about that, and he cares about them, so he sends Timothy. And he says, go and tell me how they're doing. Now, Timothy has come back to Paul in Athens, and he has said, they're doing well. They are standing firm. They are steadfast. And as a result, Paul is overjoyed. And he's writing this letter. And yes, he gives them some corrections about some things. You need to understand this. You need to understand that. But by and large, 1 Thessalonians is a letter where Paul is praising them and saying, I'm so overjoyed by what God is doing in your life and that you're standing firm in the midst of this persecution that even as he ran away, they continued to endure, right? He went to the next place. They continued to endure suffering and persecution. So the gospel does two things to our perspective on persecution, teaches us two things. Number one, it takes it from unexpected to expected. Persecution goes from being an unexpected thing to an expected thing. And then it takes it from purposeless to purposeful. It makes persecution and suffering purposeless, takes it from purposeless to being purposeful. So let's look at both of those two things. The first, the gospel makes persecution expected because it turns the world's values on its head. And anyone who chooses to live according to gospel values will find that they are coming in contradiction of the world's ways and the world does not like that. And it will push against it. Wherever the world finds, you know, the sort of person who's, <laughs> whose values is kind of, it's like the cog sticking out and they got to hammer it back down, right? That is the person who lives, you will be out of step with culture. You just will. If you live according to gospel values and the implications of the gospel, you will be out of step with the gospel. You'll be out of step with culture on numerous fronts. Unless you think we're the first generation to experience this, listen to the, to the Thessalonians' uh, experience. So one of the realities is sometimes we, we don't see what's going on behind the scenes in some of these letters. So let me give you a little bit of context. The reason the Thessalonian church is experiencing persecution is because of global political realities going on all around them, which they didn't have much to do with, but they're experiencing the result of. When Paul, when we hear about Paul in Acts chapter 17, founding the church in Thessalonica, what happens is he proclaims the gospel to Jews and to Gentiles, and many come to believe. And he's probably there for somewhere around a month. And he founds this church. But then a number of the religious leaders among the Jews get jealous of the kind of following that he is gaining through the gospel. And so they chase him out of town. But they make a really important accusation against Paul as he's being chased out of town. And it's rooted in a history that we miss as we're reading through Acts chapter 17 if we don't know a few things. So Thessalonica is the capital city of one of two provinces of an area called Macedonia. Macedonia was at one point in the history of the world the most powerful kingdom that had ever existed in the history of the world. Are you familiar with the person Alexander the Great? He is the founder of the Macedonian kingdom. Now, multiple iterations after him, I'm gonna boil down a whole lot of history into about two minutes. All right, you ready for this? So Macedonia, most powerful kingdom in the world, ruled by a monarchy. Alexander dies and there are multiple monarchs on the throne and the kingdom gets broken up over time. Eventually, Rome begins to rise to power and the greatest threat to Rome's power is Macedonia and so they clash and they have 
years and years and years of wars. Eventually, Macedonia, this exceptionally wealthy kingdom, is conquered by Rome. And as a result, Rome puts tight restrictions on them, on Macedonia. That means cities like Thessalonica, which had been very wealthy because they existed along the main trade route in the world at that time, and along a port, which meant they had industry and economy booming and thriving. They face all these restrictions now as Rome seeks to bring Macedonia under its power. And as they experience those things, they become, they go from rich to poor. They are struggling. So their reaction then is to think, do we continue to fight for our way of life and our independence and for a monarchy rather than a Senate and a Republican form of government? Or do we acquiesce? And the choice of the Macedonians is eventually to acquiesce. And they begin to bend to the will of Rome. And as they do, guess what happens? They get favored status. They begin to grow in prominence again. Cities like Thessalonica and Berea, another city that we find in the, in the New Testament description of where Paul had visited in places, cities in Macedonia, they begin to get freedom from taxation. Wouldn't it be nice to not have to pay taxes? The cities of Thessalonica become not only the capital province, not only they have many of their economic opportunities returned to them as they begin to sort of bow to the will of Rome, they also, they also get privileges like not having to pay taxes, having certain legal privileges if the accusations are brought against you if you're a city of Thessalonica. So they're now in this privileged status and the, the money has begun to flow again. Now here's what happens. The money's begun to flow and listen to the accusation. One of the, one of the prevailing things that there were still sects of people in this region of Macedonia that would argue we want a return to a monarchy. We want a king. And Rome doesn't like that because Rome has what? an emperor and a republic form of government, right? And so they're very suspicious of any claim of another king. Not to mention, they had what they called the imperial cult in Rome, which while you could worship Zeus and all other forms of Roman gods, the chief god, the chief god to worship was the emperor. And you had to declare allegiance to him above all other things. Now, the Jews when they accuse Paul, make a very specific accusation in Acts chapter 17, verse seven. They say, this Paul is stirring up trouble wherever he goes, proclaiming a new, what? King. Now, you and I read past that and we go, okay, yeah, Jesus is king. Of course he's gonna proclaim a new king. But do you hear how that would sound to the Romans? What they would hear is, this is a threat. This is dangerous. The Jews know it. And that's the accusation they make against him. Not he's proclaiming false religion. Not he's trying to get people to kind of go on this theological track. They know the Romans don't care about that. But what the Romans do care about is a province under their power that would proclaim any other king than Caesar, than the emperor, and would seek to return to another, an old form of government. So there's the fear. Now, that's where the persecution comes from. So what do the Thessalonians do? They come down hard on this new church because they don't want their privilege taken away. They're not gonna let this grow because if this grows, Rome will come and all of the gains that we've made will be taken away. Now, isn't it interesting? Do you see how the persecution of the church is rooted in just historical, economic, political realities that are happening in the day, yes? It's the same today. It's the same today. Persecution, difficulty is always rooted in the events of the day. 
it's never just this divorced idea. There's always some interest that if you follow Jesus, some worldly interest that those around you will have that you will have to counter if you follow Jesus. And in doing that, the world will want to come against you. That's why persecution goes from unexpected to expected. And that's what Paul is arguing to them. Look at what he says. First Thessalonians chapter three, verses one through four. He says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. In other words, we want you to stand firm. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Does that sound like expected or unexpected? It sounds like expected, doesn't it? That's what Paul's saying. When you live for the gospel, there will always be some way you will come against the values of the world and it will result in persecution. The second thing, and we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter one, verses six through eight, is how the gospel makes persecution purposeful. It doesn't just make it, take it from unexpected to expected. It takes it from purposeless to purposeful. And the reason it's purposeful is because persecution, and in particular the, the steadfastness of God's people in that persecution is what causes the gospel to go forward. That's why it's purposeful. Because the gospel goes forward under persecution because God's people are faithful. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Do you, get, do you hear what Paul is saying there? Your demonstration, Thessalonians, of enduring persecution and standing firm and being faithful is so purposeful because it's resounding everywhere. It's encouraging believers in other regions to continue to be bold and steadfast, and it's bearing witness to those who are not believers. He's saying so much so that we don't even have to talk about it. It's just known. It just spreads like wildfire. When somebody lives like this, other people take note. Persecution is not purposeless. It's purposeful in the gospel. So to be ready for the return of Jesus it means seeing persecution through the lens of the gospel. Seeing that it takes it from purposeless to purposeful. Seeing that it takes it from unexpected to expected. Now, can I give you encouragement? Just a point of application. Pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Day in, day out. The greatest world power in the world has now just been removed from that nation. Who's still there? The people of God. They are there. And should it be the will of the Lord, they will be persecuted. And we must pray for them. Pray for protection, pray for safety, but pray even above those things that they would be steadfast, that they would stand firm, even unto death, that the name of Jesus would be glorified and exalted and we will learn from them. 
They will be around the throne of God. If those who are martyred for his name, they will be there and we will stand in awe of their faithfulness. And we will have to learn that we might endure as they endure. So friends, pray, 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 pray for our brothers and sisters, yes? They need you to cover them, to cover them in prayer. The second thing, and we're just gonna, like I said, we're gonna talk about three, is that we have to, to be prepared for the return of the Lord, we have to let the gospel teach us how to think about relationships. Now listen, here's what the gospel does. The gospel teaches me to look at the success of my life through a relational lens. I no longer measure the success of my life by my work status, I don't measure it by my bank account, I don't measure it by the health of my family, I don't measure it by any other thing other than through a relational lens. Now, here's why I say that. Because the gospel, at its heart, is a relational thing. It's the reconciliation, the restoration of relationship of us to who? To the Lord. That is, by, that is relationship, it's not a set of facts, it is a, it is a restoration to a person to a being, God himself, through the person of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about the gospel, we are always, always talking about something relational. That's what it is at its heart. And as a result, it teaches me to measure the success of my life through relationships. How much of an impact am I making on others for the sake of Jesus? Not just that I have lots of friends, that's not what I mean when I say measure the success of your life by relationships. I mean you measure the success of your life by the impact you're having on other people for the sake of Jesus, through edifying other believers and equipping them and encouraging them, helping them along the way and loving them and bearing their burdens, and by bearing witness to those who don't believe and loving them and helping introduce them to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that you would be busy about those things, that you would measure the success of your life, not by your career, but you would measure it by the impact you have relationally for Christ. That's what the gospel teaches us to do. And when that's the case, when that's how I measure the success of my life, then what we're gonna see, Paul is gonna say, is that's gonna make your purity of mind and your purity of motive and your purity of heart, it's gonna make them paramount. Because you can't have right relationship and you can't impact people for the sake of Christ unless those things are true of you, unless he's transforming and changing you. And so it makes character imperative and he's gonna visit that issue time and time again throughout this letter. He's gonna address everything from our motives in ministry to our relationships with one another in the family of faith. He's even gonna visit our physical intimacy within our, you know, that those should only be happening in marriage. And he's gonna say, your conduct in this area needs to be right. It's, that, that's how like day-to-day -day reality he's gonna get about what it means to be ready for the return of Christ what you're doing with your bodies, what you're doing with your mind, how you're thinking relationally about these things. It's gonna matter. I, I read this text to you all the time. I, I'll read it again, and we're gonna visit it again in chapter two, but listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter two, verse 19 and 20. Paul says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Does that sound like a guy who's measuring the success of his life by his bank account? No. It sounds like a guy who's saying the impact of my life has everything to do with the way I've invested in you, in other people, the relationships that I have cultivated and developed for the sake of Jesus. He's actually saying, 
I will, there's going to be some way in which I'll boast before Jesus when he comes. And you will be my reason for hope and for joy because of what God has done in you. And that I had some part in that. He's not bragging or boasting that he, had, that he did it. But he's going to point out what Jesus did in them. Think about that. That's what it means to be ready for the return of Jesus. Is there anybody that you can point to right now and say that I could boast in them? I could boast in them right now. In, if Jesus came back before this worship service was over, who would you boast in? Who would you say, I poured my life into them? Gave, I gave everything I had so that they would become more satisfied in Jesus and find him more beautiful and believable, that they would grow in maturity. In him, Colossians 1, 28, him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. About whom will you say that? That seems to be Paul's definition of success. He, he, same idea, chapter four, verse nine and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. You see that? More and more. What's he saying? This is so central to the gospel, these right relationships. First with God and then secondarily with one another. It's so central to what the gospel is meant to produce that I don't even have to talk about it because I know that the second, that that's what God is doing in your heart. If God is not at work in your heart to love your brothers and sisters, then God is not in your heart. Because John tells us that anyone who says I love God but doesn't love his brother or sister is what? A liar. You cannot love God and not love your brother, not love your sister. It's not possible. The two go together, always, without exception. That's what Paul is saying. Man, I, I don't even have to say it. God, God's saying it to you. I know he is. To be ready for the return of Christ, I have to have my relationships right. And listen, friends, I know as I say this, that there are strained relationships in your life. There's ones that you're struggling in. And even as I say it, the, the amount of pain you feel over the idea of trying to bring any kind of reconciliation to that is immense. And I get that. But I just want to urge you, I want you to be ready for the return of Jesus. And being ready for the return of Jesus means, it's going to mean pursuing reconciliation in that really hard relationship. It's going to mean forgiving in places where you just don't want to forgive. It's going to mean leveraging everything you got so that you can pour your life into others. You may have to seek forgiveness. Someone may need to seek it from you. You may need to give forgiveness. There's, there's gonna be no manner of challenge, no shortage of challenges as it relates to relationships, but you are not ready for the return of Jesus until the gospel is informing your relationships. The third way that we wanna talk about today that we get ready for the return of Jesus is that we let the gospel teach us how to think about our work. Now, I love, nothing could be more practical. Paul's gonna give us really a theology of vocation, a theology of work throughout First and Second Thessalonians. He's gonna instruct us about how we should think about our work. One of the things that was happening is the Thessalonian church was thinking, Jesus is coming tomorrow, so they stopped working. At least some of them did. And they all just get supported by others. Others can support me. And Paul says, hey, you don't work, you don't eat. He says, you need to work. 
You're made to work. God made you to work. There's a wrong theology that they were believing, which was that work was not a part of the eternal kingdom of God, that when he came, that they wouldn't be working. Friends, do you know that we're gonna work forever? Imagine doing work, but with none, none of the hindrances that sin and the fall have caused. Imagine doing work where everything you do is fruitful. Every labor you put your hand to succeeds. It all bears the fruit. It was always intended to succeed because sin and the barriers that it creates are no longer there to thwart that work. We will not spend forever on a cloud playing a harp. Please stop believing that. You and I will tend the new heavens and the new earth. We will get to walk in the fulfillment of all that God intended in the garden to begin with. Now look, some of you are like, that's awesome. I'm gonna do the same work I do now. Maybe that's true. And I just get to do it like with none of those things. I have no idea what I'm gonna do because Jesus is gonna be there. So I'm not gonna be needed. This preaching business, <laughs> it ain't gonna happen. And if you think I'm opening my mouth, you are sorely mistaken. So I don't know what I'm gonna do, but I'm gonna do something. Maybe I'll tend a garden. I don't know. But we're gonna work. And that's what Paul is trying to remind them. He's saying, you gotta, you gotta work, friend. You were made for it. And right now, it's hard. It's toil. It's labor. But here's what the gospel does. The gospel changes our perspective on work in at least these three ways. It changes our perspective on work from something that is for our advancement to something that is now for his advancement. My work is no longer about me getting advanced. It's now about advancing his purposes in the world. That's one thing it does to our work. The second thing it does to our work is it changes it from something we have to do to something we get to do. From something we have to do to something we get to do. Now, I know some of you are like, I don't believe that because I hate my job. The gospel transforms your work, friend. It does. Third, it changes work from something that is temporary, like temporarily meaningful, to something that's eternally meaningful. And not just because we use that work to sort of gain you know, jewels in our crown, right? To, to earn rewards. Not just for that. Not because it's like some tally board, right? But because, as I said, we will do work forever. So the work that you're doing now is, a, is in some way training you, preparing you for the work you will do forever. Praise God for that. Because he will renew and restore all of creation. The gospel makes us the best citizens of this world because we know that what we do matters here uh, and in the next world. Listen to what he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. It says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. What's interesting about that is in other places, Paul says, yeah, we have a right for you to support us because we're, we're doing gospel work and it's right that you would support us. He has no problem with that. But then he also here says, but I'm not gonna let anything stand in the way of the gospel because this is, this is about advancing that, not about advancing me. And so as a result, when he goes to Thessalonica, he builds tents, he makes tents in order to work hard and labor and toil so that no one can say anything other than Paul is not here to make money off our backs. He's here to proclaim the gospel. 
And so in Thessalonica, he works, right? He urges them to see the value of that work. So those three things. How do you get ready for the return of Jesus? You let the gospel inform the way you think about persecution. You let the gospel inform and teach you about how you think about relationships. You let the gospel inform and teach you about how you think about work. And there's gonna be many more things. But being prepared for the return of Jesus isn't about knowing times and dates and end times figures and all this sort of thing. Those things are fine and we will touch on some of those things. They're good, they can prepare us and comfort us. But ultimately being prepared, ultimately being prepared is about a life lived in day-to-day righteousness because of the implications of the gospel upon our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. And we pray now that as we come to the table that you would prepare us to partake of what we partake in order to proclaim your resurrection from the dead. The cross, the blood that was spilt, the body that was broken, but ultimately then the resurrection that occurred afterwards. And so we, as you've instructed us, we don't partake of these things lightly, but in a measured way, we are thoughtful and we invite you to examine our hearts now, Holy Spirit. We invite you to convict us and to comfort us as you see fit. Thank you, Jesus, for these elements. Would you speak to us now as we consider your sufferings, the sacrifice that was made so that this gospel truth could come to bear in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, as I just prayed, whenever we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded of two things by the scriptures. Number one is that we're reminded not to partake of these elements lightly. And by that, what the Lord means is don't partake of them in such a way that you don't allow an examination of your hearts and an examination of your lives. So these represent the body and blood of Jesus, the sacrifice that was given so that we could be reconciled to God the Father. And as such, as we hold these elements in our hand physically and tangibly, we hold them, we are reminded that there is a, an obedience that's called for from us. So my encouragement to you is as these elements are distributed to you, I'm gonna invite you to sit with the Lord and to invite him to examine your heart. And where there's things that need to change, I'll encourage you, don't resist. Don't resist and partake of these in a way that would make you hypocritical and say, oh, I've partaken of the sacrifice of Christ, but I have no desire to see my life come in line with that. And then the second thing we're reminded of in the scripture is that this is a table that is for those who have believed, who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, if that's not you, we are so glad that you're here and we believe these elements actually represent an invitation to you to see the sacrifice of Christ. It's an invitation to receive it for the forgiveness of your sins. But until you believe, until you place your faith in the Lord Jesus, we'll invite you to let these elements pass because we shouldn't proclaim with our actions something we have not believed in our minds and in our hearts. And so use this time now. Use it as a time to consider what you've heard today. Is Jesus coming back? Did he die? Did he rise? And if so, what is the implication for my life? What does that call for for from me? We'll invite you to let the Spirit speak to you about that now in this time. So service, if you would come and we will partake of the elements together. Let me pray once more as we come to the table now. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these elements. We ask that in them you would instruct us, that you would guide us in righteousness. 
We thank you for the representation that they are of your body and your blood sacrificed for us. And we pray that we would not partake lightly now. So speak to us, Holy Spirit, as we wait on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.